You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. We have opened up a can of worms, have we not? All right. Well, I want to welcome you all here to Kingsway. If you are joining us online or watching this message later this week, I want to welcome you as well. My name is Brett Cadwell. And I am the director of ministries here at Kingsway. Love serving this place, love leading our team, our ministry team. Um, Last week, Rhett did a great job, did he not? Of, um, yeah. He did a great job of of answering this question or this assumption that all good people go to heaven. He walked us through how scripture says, well, it's not necessarily about being good, it's about being forgiven. And, And the fact that forgiven people will see Jesus one day, and I can't wait for that day. Um, and I hope that you are being challenged through this The Way I See It series. We've gotten some great feedback already from um, the way God is challenging um, each one of us, and I hope and I pray that God is um, getting ready to challenge you today as we tackle this question or idea that all religions are essentially the same. Because the, the whole premise of this Way I See It series is that Each one of us sees things very differently, don't we? Have you ever had a conversation with a relative about politics around the Thanksgiving table? Did you all agree? Right. How should you raise your kids? Do we agree about that or do we see that different? What about music or movies or food, right? We start talking about the stomach. We don't all all like the same foods. What about pizza? I know in our house, my wife Shelby, she wants the whole can of sauce on that pizza. And I could care less if there's sauce on it at all. Let's load that bad boy with some cheese and some meat, some pepperoni, bacon, sausage, maybe some mushrooms, and let's go to town, amen? So, but what about when we start talking about church? How do we best reach the lost? How do we best equip our people? Or when do we best equip our people? So what happens when we look at, and we look just beyond the church, and we look at this question of, are religions all essentially the same? See, the world sees religion differently. The way you see it is probably, or statistically, um, not maybe the way that your neighbor sees it, or your coworker sees it. So today, we're tackling this question, are all religions essentially the same? This idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe, it's all saying the same thing, right? Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, we are all headed to the same place, right? We are all part of the same rat race leading to the same result. We heard it in that video that we just watched together. That video is a great compilation of people that are being asked this question around the globe about Christianity. I love it when the, the one lady that was interviewed started laughing as she said, a monopoly on truth. Like who could have a monopoly on truth? We heard things like intolerance. Tolerance is a buzzword we hear in our culture all the time. One guy said, I don't know what the right religion is, I just know what I believe it is. And the, the guy, he was wearing a black shirt, he said, there is as many ways to God as there are people in the world. 
And I know many of you may be thinking here today, is this really, like, is this really a thing? Like, is this something that we need to take a whole Sunday and devote a conversation about and to talk about? Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you were raised as a Christian, you came to church, and you never have really questioned your faith. It's just what you did, and this idea might be very foreign to you. But I know for others of you in the room today, and I heard from several after last service, that this is a real struggle in your faith, in the relationships with your family, with your coworkers. Maybe you were raised Muslim or Hindu, and you have recently been trying to figure out this thing called Christianity. Who is he really? Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Was he just a really good guy? Was he crazy? Or was he the son of God, our savior? The stats say that for a majority of the world in the US, this is a typically held belief. You saw it in that video, I found a more recent stat. Barna Research says that from a study done in the US in January of this year, January of 2018, it says more than half of all Americans both teens coming in at 58% and adults at 62% agree with the statement, many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. That is a stat from polling Americans and I believe that it, you would see that number climb if you polled the worldwide population. That stat is coming from a country that on paper claims to be 70% Christian. So assuming both those stats are accurate, by comparing those two statistics alone, it means that there are people that are filling the seats of churches that are in agreement that all or at least more than one religion can lead to eternal life. So if we've established that this idea that all religions are the same is actually a thing, is actually worth our time to talk about this morning, then what does that actually mean? This idea really is rooted in a word and a term called religious pluralism. Now, that's a fancy term, let's break it down. So that's a way of thinking, okay, we have a Muslim over here and we have a Buddhist over here. He has his beliefs, she has her beliefs. He has his rituals, she has her rituals. At the end of the day, both of these religions really have the same result. That's what religious pluralism is saying. They may have different beliefs, different rituals, different expectations of what you're supposed to do if you call yourself one of those religions, but they both ultimately lead to the same place. Ultimately, they're saying that all ways are equally true. To better understand this idea or way of thinking, I want to introduce you to an illustration I came across that's often used to make this point. This folktale or story is very often used in college classrooms across the country. And it's been used by leaders in other major world religions to get this point across for years and years and years. The, the idea that if you don't have to agree with me, I don't have to agree with you, there's no ultimate truth, but ultimately it doesn't matter that where we differ, we are both gonna end up in the same place eventually. So this, this parable is called the parable of the blind men and, the, and an elephant. And it originated in India a long, long time ago. The most common version of the story actually comes from a children's book that's widely available here in the States. And the idea is that these six blind men go to visit 
this guy named Raja, which is a king. And they encounter an elephant in this king's palace for the first time. So six blind men, palace, elephant, never seen one before. The first blind man touches the elephant's side and he says, how smooth an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man touches his trunk and he says, how round an elephant is like a snake. The third blind man touches the tusk and says, how sharp an elephant is like a spear. Now there's six of them, hang with me. There's not just three like most American jokes, right? So the fourth blind man touches the leg of an elephant and says, how tall an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant and said, how wide an elephant is like a fan. And the last blind man put out his hand and he touched the elephant on the tail and he said, how thin an elephant is like a rope. An argument soon ensued between the six blind men and each blind man thinking that his own perception of the elephant was the correct one. The rajah or the king was quickly awakened by the commotion and he called out from his balcony and he said, the elephant is a big animal. He said, each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. The moral of the story goes something like this. In essence, we all have different experiences. Whenever we find ourselves at, odd with other, at odds with others, we should humble ourselves and recognize our limit or our limitations of knowledge. So then when applied to religion or this idea that all religions are the same or this idea of religious pluralism, the story says that no one can have comprehensive vision of truth. It lends itself to the idea of religious pluralism, where all religions are equally true and you need all of them to figure out this puzzle of religion. I tell you this story to give you an idea of how someone from another religion is looking at religion in general or how they're looking at Christianity from their own seat, from their own worldview. This story backfires and ultimately contradicts itself in several ways. But one of the ways, and maybe the simplest, is this, that the story in and of itself claims to have the comprehensive truth about religion. But the story in and of itself, its point is saying that that comprehensive truth is not available to anyone. Timothy Keller says it in this book, in his book, The Reason for God. He says it this way, how could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant? unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you just claim that none of the religions have? So there's, this is a taste of the idea of how the world is viewing this question. You could say that I pointed out the elephant in the room. See what I did there? Nah, nah. This is a story that is taught to children and students of all ages across the globe. So let's dive into this question. Are religions, are all religions essentially the same? Let's take our blindfolds off. Let's look at a few of the world's largest religions from a 30,000 foot view and apply scripture and logic and see how the worldviews hold up when placed next to one another. We don't have time today to go into great detail. I'm not gonna touch on every single aspect of these religions, and I'm not gonna to touch on every single way that 
that um, Christianity looks in view of these religions, but we're going to look at a few, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. So let's, let's get started. And as we're doing this, what I want you to do is I want you to picture a mountain in your mind. Picture that you are traveling, you are hiking up this mountain, and let's assume for a minute that at the top of this mountain is the goal of all life and being, the purpose of life, the purpose of why we live, um, no matter the religion you choose or believe, is at the top of this mountain. Our lives, our every day, is wrapped up in this path that leads up the mountain. So whether you are a Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, or Christian, you are on this path every day trying to achieve paradise, enlightenment, nirvana, heaven, or whatever your ultimate reality or goal is, it's at the top, and we're climbing. So let's look at Hinduism. Hinduism represents about one billion people in the world. There's one billion Hindus in our world. About 800 million of those reside in India, which is actually where the religion started as early as 1500 BC, but that's a little cloudy. Here's the crazy part that I found out as I was studying Hinduism. Hinduism self-admits that they, don't, they do not have a unified creed, a unified belief system, or even a centralized holy city. But somehow, in the midst of a lot of non-clarity, the religion has grown into the world's third largest. The big idea of a Hindu's life is to find freedom from the world as they see it. They allow each person on their own to develop an almost personal religion around a few common concepts and guidelines that help guide them. You can sum it up by saying that this is a pantheistic religion. That's a big word that basically means that God is all and all is God. Their core belief kind of illustrates that, this, that it's this God named Brahman who is one of as many as 330 million gods that they worship as a part of Hinduism. This, this God named Brahman is more of a supreme reality. He is one God, but he's ultimately unknowable. That's what they teach. He's not personal. He doesn't want a relationship with you, but he is the ultimate spiritual reality. I was talking with PV John, the, the founder of Care India, which is our partner over in India. Uh, he was in town a few weeks ago, and we sat down and had coffee, and uh, I was studying for this message, and so I had a lot of this stuff on my mind, so I started pelting PV John with questions because he, he's lived his whole life in India, surrounded by Hindus. And, uh, and he started describing the Brahmin and their, and their thinking the same way that I found as, as I was reading and, uh, and learning, that they describe this God as an ocean. It doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end, it's there, it encompasses all things, and it's in all things. And a person, me or you, are simply just like waves on that ocean. All things, animals, bugs, trash cans, Pop-Tarts, are like waves on that ocean. Brahman is actually not one of the more popular gods, believe it or not. Um, you'll see representations of gods like Vishnu and Shiva, which are their gods of creation and destruction. They kind of work as a team. And then there's a god named Hanuman, which is their monkey god. He actually has a monkey face. Um, and you see this in almost every village that you travel to in the southern regions of India when we're traveling around with Care India on a trip over there. There's been many influences into the religion over time, but there's actually no credited founder of Hinduism. So the meaning of life for a Hindu is to live a good life 
hope for a better reincarnation in the future, and eventually become enlightened where they find themselves in the afterlife. As a Hindu, you are climbing every day, day after day. Your life is consumed with nothing more than trying to be the very best, to be kind, to be good, to bring karma, good karma on yourself, to live a lifetime and die, and hope you have been good enough in that lifetime to be reincarnated into something, into a higher caste, which is like their system um, over there in their culture, that is one step higher than you were in your past life. You start to climb over and you keep trying to live your life right day after day just to bring enough karma on yourself over and over and over again. It is a cycle with seemingly no end. So as you climb this mountain, you are essentially on a path that is in a circle. You are caught in the round and round cycle that is your day to day and you have no end. Hoping someday to do, good, to do enough good to be kind enough to accumulate enough karma to reach the top of this mountain. And once you get to the top, you're essentially enlightened, but no one really understands or knows what you actually find when you reach this enlightenment. So that is Hinduism in five minutes. Let's look at Buddhism. Buddhism was founded as an offshoot of Hinduism. There's about 500 million Buddhists across the globe it has actually seen some growth in recent years in America, in Hollywood, shocker, and mostly along the left and right coast of our country. It's, it was founded in current day Nepal, roughly between 600 and 400 BC, in which was formerly India, and was founded by this guy named Siddhartha Gautama, or commonly known as Buddha. He was raised, so Buddha was raised in a Hindu family. He was, it was a well-to-do Hindu family. He was raised inside a palace. And Buddha actually never left his palace until he was 30 years old. When he was finally allowed out of his palace by his parents, he had his chariot driver, which by a show of hands, who wants one of those, right? Who wants a chariot driver? That sounds awesome. So his chariot driver took him to see the surrounding villages. When he did this, he came face-to-face with suffering in the world for the very first time. Can you imagine that at the age of 30? So this was later called the Four Signs. That name was given after Buddha had died. But on that day, he encountered four signs. He encountered an elderly man, a man that was aging and getting older. He encountered a sick man. He encountered a decaying corpse that was being prepared for burial. And he came across an ascetic or a traveling holy monk um, type person that was studying the Hindu religion that was at the end of his life. Buddha, when met with this suffering around him for the first time, he became obsessed, that's how the story goes, with finding a way to avoid this suffering. He stopped at nothing to try to find a way to remove the suffering from his life. He began by trying to become a holy man himself and through many years and, and work and toil, it just didn't work. For him, And so as the story tells us, he sits beneath a tree and he claims that he's going to sit there until he gets the answers that he's looking for. Now, I don't know how long he sat there, but at the end of him sitting there, he got the answers he was looking for. This is referred to in Buddhism as the awakening. And in this awakening, he landed at four noble truths and an eightfold path that simply encourages a life of moderation. 
No highs, no lows. It is for this reason that Buddhists are often referred to as non-theistic, which means that they don't believe there is a God or really that it doesn't matter if there is a God or not, that being, there being an ultimate reality just really doesn't make a difference. This is pretty hard for Christians, even for Americans to understand. And this is a major difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. Hinduism has 330 million gods. Buddhism is saying, I don't, whether you have a God or not, it doesn't really matter. So these four noble truths describe that to live is to suffer, that suffering is caused by our desire and greed, there is a way to end our desire and greed, thus ending our suffering, and to end the desire and to release the suffering, you must follow the eightfold path. Sounds simple, right? So the eightfold path is a list of eight things like right speech, right work, um, right action. So do the right thing, say the right thing, have the right job that you must do in order to end your desire for anything. Buddhist thinkers would describe it this way. It is a practical guideline to ethical and mental development with the goal of freeing the individual from attachments and delusions. And it finally leads to understanding the truth about all things. Together with the Four Noble Truths, it constitutes the gist of Buddhism. Great emphasis is put on the practical aspect because it is only through practice that one can attain a higher level of existence and finally reach nirvana, which is, in their language, the blowing out of the flame of desire. The ultimate goal of a Buddhist is to reach nirvana. It is essentially this end of the reincarnation cycle that's happening over and over again. It is the way out. And they reach a stage or spiritually, a spirituality of, in their language, is called non-existence. So, to sum it all up, as a Buddhist, you are climbing this mountain every day, living out the four noble truths, trying to align your life with this eightfold path to hopefully rid yourself of suffering. And you do this lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And when you do eventually reach nirvana, you realize that it was all, again, their word, nothingness, or simply the end of your suffering. So you simply follow a path around in circles, up the mountain for years and years, lifetime upon lifetime, and your best and final hope is to just end the cycle. So that's Buddhism in five minutes. Our last religion we're gonna look at is Islam. Islam is the world's second largest religion with about two billion Muslims worldwide. Islam was birthed in modern day Mecca, which is in modern day Saudi Arabia. So Mecca was a place of peace in the midst of tribes fighting all around the Middle East. Mecca was this town where they could come as a respite from the fighting. Muhammad, who eventually became the founder of Islam, was born in Mecca in 570 AD, uh, about 600 years after Jesus died, and worked for a caravan, caravan business that was in Mecca. Muhammad received a revelation when he was roughly 37 years old, and he came to believe that this revelation came from Abraham's God. An interesting part of the story is that that Muhammad actually was confused about where his revelation came from and he was convinced it was from Abraham's God by his wife. He started sharing these revelations with people and started to create a following. In 620 AD, Muhammad traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem and the story says that Muhammad was taken up on the Temple Mount and he experienced the vision where he was taken up to heaven. 
And in this vision, he meets Abraham, he actually meets Jesus, and he meets Allah, his God, and Allah confirms him as a prophet and sends him back to earth. One point about this story is that Muhammad was the only one there that was able to report that this actually happened. In 622, Muhammad makes his way back to a town north of Mecca called Medina, and they welcomed him and his followers, and Islam was essentially born and began to grow at this point. Islam literally means submission. One who submits to God or Allah is a Muslim. They have incredible respect for Jesus, but they believe he is only a prophet. He is not divine. He is not God's son. He is simply a prophet of God. He's a really good guy who did some good things, but ultimately has no divine importance outside of being a prophet. The Islamic faith is built on these five pillars I want to give you a quote from a, a Dr. Amir Kaner, who was one of a pair of brothers that came to the United States and were Muslims that converted to Christianity and have served as well-known professors and uh, provosts and presidents of universities, Christian universities and seminaries around the country. Dr. Amir says this, the pillars of Islam really demonstrate that Islam is a work-based, works-based religion. Not only reciting the creed, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and saying it tens of thousands of times throughout your life, but the prayers five times daily, the fasting, which is a one lunar month out of the year, which is called Ramadan, which I believe we're actually in right now, and going to Mecca and doing the tithe, which is like their version of almsgiving or giving to the poor. These five pillars encompass your entire life. Ultimately, the Muslim lives their life climbing this mountain to attain paradise by living by the five pillars in order to attain that paradise at their death. And if they do not abide by the five pillars enough, then they are sent to hell for eternity. Islam actually teaches in the Quran that on the day of judgment, one's good and evil deeds will actually be weighed on a scale. As a Muslim, you are following the path up a mountain, trying to follow the teachings of Muhammad, and be good enough to reach paradise following the five pillars and hoping and trying to do your best to fulfill all these check boxes and tasks in order to be good enough to reach the top of the mountain. And ultimately, again, it's always a question whether you're even moving your way up the mountain or not. You won't ever know that until the day of judgment. So my hope for you is that as we walk through these three world religions, and we look at the distinctions between each one, the laws, the foundations, the history, the beliefs, that there is nothing the same about any of it. The logic of the fundamentals of each tears down the argument that they all in fact lead to the same place. At the end of the day, that they are all somehow equally true. You cannot have a God whose love is conditional like Allah, and a God who is impersonal and wants no relationship with you, like Brahman, and a God whose love is completely unconditional, like that of the God of the Bible. When you look at the afterlife, you can have one that ends in nothingness, or one that is conditional on your good works, or one that is a free gift, given always and freely. When we look at Christianity, as we examine our own faith, we find a drastic difference. It jumps off the page, 
or at least it should. You see, we don't have a prophet that set out a list of rules to follow or pillars to adhere to or a path that we must walk down in order to maybe possibly receive this promise of hope. When we look at our faith and our beliefs, we have to look at it through the words of Jesus. Fundamentally, we look at the the teaching that you hear growing up in church in probably the widest known passage in all of the Bible. John 3, 16 through 17 says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. This same son of God, Jesus, that was sent into the world later said in another very commonly used verse, John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the source of life. You know what's crazy and what I, what I found when I was studying was that Jesus spoke these words in John 14 and he was speaking them in response to a question he was asked. He was asked a question by the Apostle Thomas. And the Apostle Thomas, we now know, would later take the gospel of Jesus to India. And he would be martyred at the hands of radical Hindus. He's buried in Chennai and we visit where they believe his body is on a, on, on a trip there with Care India. And how true must those words have been in Thomas's heart? The words of Jesus as he was being killed at the hands of people made in God's image, but had found a different way that wasn't the truth and only led to death. Even in the midst of that death, Thomas knew that he had found life, that he had found the truth, that he had found the way. Jesus goes on in John 10 and he says this, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. The Father and I are one. We see Jesus, a man who claims to be God. This is a huge deal. This simple fact alone destroys any argument that there is any logical connection between Christianity and any other religion in the world. It's not the only one, but in my view, it's the biggest one. Nowhere in any other religion that this world has ever known has a man claimed to be God. You see, in every religion in the world, they say, here are the rules. Here's the path. Here's the truth. Follow this prophet. Follow this founder. Climb this mountain in your own strength. And if you happen to get to the top, then you may find your paradise, your nirvana, your enlightenment. Our God, the one and only, the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he came down the mountain for you. In all other major religions, you find your way to God, but in Christianity, God finds his way to us. God saw his sheep at the bottom of the mountain and he knew because he made them that they were broken and they were sinful. 
and they were never going to make it up that mountain in their own strength. They needed a redeemer, a father, a savior who would snatch them up in his hand and he would never let them go. Timothy Keller says this, the founders of all other religions said basically this, I'm a prophet, come to help you find God. Jesus is the only one who said, I am God who have come to find you. God knows your name, God knows your pain, God sees your mistakes and he sees your weaknesses. He knows you're broken because he made you. And he wants nothing more today than to connect with you. And he's pursuing you each and every day and he never and will never give up. That's why he sent his son down the mountain to take your sin to take your faults, to take my faults, to take your junk, to take my junk, and to kill it on the cross. You see the gospel, the same gospel that Thomas took to India years and years ago, the gospel changes everything. The cross changes everything. No other God of the world has done that or will ever do that. That is what we are celebrating today and every Sunday. We are celebrating that the cross changes everything. We don't need an eight-step path, five pillars to follow, or hope that we round up enough good karma in our life in order to save ourselves. Christ did all of that for us, and he did that through the cross. But here's the thing, church. Here's what I kept coming across in my mind as I was prepping for this message. Sometimes this idea of world religion seems, well, for lack of a better word, worldly. It seems so far away. It seems hard to relate to why does that matter in my life and how does that really impact my life in Avon, Indiana? Did you know that there's a Hindu temple in Avon? Three miles from where we are right now. They're open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. today. They're right down the street and they actually have one of their gods that sits near the retention pond you can see from the road. And they are worshiping these various Hindu gods that they have chosen because again, they've kind of made their religion their own personal religion. But that's not the only example. You look around you as you grocery shop, as you walk into schools. Um, I had a, a conversation with a young man after the last service. He had an example of a Hindu and a Muslim friend at Avon High School that um, actually stopped in their house and asked where Southeast was so that he could pray to uh, Mecca while they were at his house. This is something that is very real and is, is very evident in our culture today. And the United States is becoming much more of a global place and the globe is kind of stretching around the world and these these folks from other cultures and other religions are moving into our towns in our area in the greater Indianapolis area for sure. You see, this is a much more diverse place in your own, than your own circle or your own family might reflect. Statistically in America, one in three people that you meet will be of a different worldview than you. One in three. 
We haven't even touched today on the 24% of Americans that are unaffiliated with religion. So this is your atheists, your agnostics, uh, and the nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. These are the people that check the box, none, when asked what religion they adhere to. These are people that aren't even trying to climb the mountain. The climb for them isn't even worth it. So here is my challenge for you today, church. You remember that last guy from the video. He said a lot of things, but one of the things he said was, you would rather tell people what to believe than actually help them find it. Let's be a church who will stop at nothing to help our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our families, help them find what we have found. Because it's too good to keep for yourself. Be that person that is willing to move your focus from yourself and look outward. And today I wanna challenge you to do these three things. Number one, I want, you have to know how you see it. Okay, we've been talking all day about the way the world sees it. You have to know how you see it as you are striving to become more like Christ. That's our purpose around this place. We strive to become more like Christ, more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today. And as we strive to become more like Christ, we must seek to understand the Christian worldview that we've touched on today. You have to spend time with God outside of this time on Sunday morning. Again, he's a God that wants to connect with you, but it's not just here. It's not just on Sunday morning. You have to connect with God every day and you have to make it a priority. Sometimes this is overwhelming for people. We'll start with one day, one day. And then once we've done that, connect with others. You gotta find a group. You gotta put people in your life that will speak truth. A life group, a men's group, a women's Bible study, a group of awesome people around this place. You all are awesome. That can dig into what you believe and why you believe it. You can ask questions and get real answers without judgment, right church? Do you need resources, you have questions, you can contact me personally or my ministry team. We literally exist to help you and to lead you in these conversations. I wanna introduce you to a couple resources that have helped me um, in my study for this sermon, but really one of these came to me a long time ago. One book that I ran across about 10 years ago is called What's the Big Deal About Other Religions? If this is kind of the first time that you've started to have this conversation, this is a great book for you. It looks at almost every religion in the world, compares it to Christianity, points out the differences, and, uh, and really continually points back to Christianity and helps you understand your own faith as you're diving into that. If you're somebody that likes a deeper conversation, you're gonna need a lot of time and you're gonna need a cup of coffee and some quiet and a quiet place, which you don't find at my house very often. But Ravi Zacharias, a famous apologist, uh, actually born in India, and he, he does a lot of ministry here in the States. He wrote this book called Jesus Among Other Gods. And it's deep. It kind of takes some of the things that John and Dylan talk about in this book and he takes them to a new level trying to explain them. And then the third resource that I'd lead you to is a website called Explore God. Dot com. And this is a website that is from a Christian worldview. They admit that. 
but they literally tackle some of the hardest questions that the world is asking. And they do this by creating videos, creating articles you can read. It is a great resource to answer some of your questions that, that aren't answered here today or maybe come up from today's conversation. So number one, know how you see it. Number two, we have to invite those around us. Open your eyes to the opportunities around you, within your families, the families on your baseball team. I coach a team over in Danville, go Irish. We play a big tournament this week. But your baseball teams, your sports teams, your band or choir families. I know some of you band and choir families, you spend more time in your life with those other families than maybe your own extended family. Maybe it's the couple down the street. Or if you were with us last week, maybe it's the waitress at the sushi club on 10th Street, even though it used to be an old pizza hut, right? Had to do that for Rhett. So God came down that mountain to save you and for every other person that you encounter every day. God didn't intend your faith to be selfish. Black or white, young or old, Hindu, Muslim, or Christian, God came down that mountain and sent his son to the cross for each one of them. But I challenge you today to start with one. Pray that God would give you just one, that you can buy the coffee, you can set the time at Starbucks, you can sit across from them, you can listen to their story and earn the right to share part of yours. So know how you see it and invite those around you. And the third one is the, is pro, is the most important, and I love this, is let God do the work because he promises to. We see this play out as Paul is instructing Timothy. He gives us a great example of how to have this conversation. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And in this conversation, he importantly reminds us of who changes hearts and ultimately who changes lives. It says this, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. You must be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Who knows a difficult person, right? Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. They will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. So look at that. God says, be patient. Approach them with gentleness and know the truth. So know how you see it. And then if you do all of those things, then perhaps God, not Brett, and not any of you, perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn from the truth. That takes all the pressure off. You don't have to have all the conversations or all the answers to your conversations. You don't have to have all the answers that come from these books. You don't have to be a scholar you don't have to be a well-known professor at a Christian university. God is going to use you and God is ultimately gonna change your heart. So I know that we talked about that today, you, there, I don't know where this message lands in the room today. I don't know if you walked in here and you were raised as a Buddhist or a Muslim. Some of the things I said today may have offended you. And I'm, and I'm sorry for that, but the gospel is offensive. 
And I want nothing more for, than this conversation to continue. Okay, this is a monologue. Okay, but there needs to be a dialogue that happens afterwards. Because God is working in each one of our lives and he is not intended for this church to just come together on Sunday morning and to worship a God and to go out and nothing changes about us. He's intended to give each one of us the ability to have these conversations on our own in the world. So if, if you are one of those people that maybe this is the first time you're here at Kingsway, this is kind of a hard and a, kind of a deep message to hear on your first time, but we would want nothing more than to continue that conversation. There'll be a team up here to my left, your right, that would love to engage in that conversation with you. Maybe this is something that you're struggling with in your own heart. Maybe these are questions that you have asked. That's okay. Faith is built by asking questions. If you don't ask a question, you are leading blindly and that's not what Jesus wants and that's not what is intended for you. So if you're, if you're struggling through some of these questions, maybe you, you're going through some junk in your own life like we talked about. You're realizing that you are, you are broken and you don't have all the answers. Will you come up here when we start singing in a minute? You bow on your knees and you pray to the almighty God who knows your name, who loves you. In Kingsway, folks, we, I don't ever wanna see somebody up here praying by themselves. You come alongside them, you put your arm around them just like your God puts his arm around you. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, we know that um, this message hits each person in this room in a different way. God, as I heard from people after the last service, God, that you, you are working through the people of this church, God, to speak truth in the lives of the people in our community, people that may or may not ever step foot in here to hear your truth, but God, you have designed us to be used by you. God, may you help us be bold. May you help us have the faith to reach out to those people in our lives. God, to have those hard conversations. God, if there's people in this room that are questioning and asking questions today, may you bring answers. Because you say that you will. You say that all we have to do is seek and knock and keep knocking and you will answer. You will answer. So God, the God of the universe, God, the God of our lives who sent his son to love us and to save us on a cross, God, I pray that you wrap your arms around each one of the people in this room right now, God, and may they know that you are loved and they are cared for. It's your name we pray, amen.